0: Reading comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. In 1820, a former revolutionary. He became the third president of the United States. He picked up a pair of scissors and his cutting tools, and he began to cut, snipping away at sections. Now, he wasn't doing a house project, you know, or creating a fun collage for his Pinterest page. Rather, he had picked up his own version of the Bible and began to cut out all the sections of Jesus' life, his teachings, the miracles, the resurrection that he just found didn't quite fit with his modern sensibilities. Now, what's fascinating is that he didn't just stop with, you know, cutting out the sections he, he didn't agree with. He actually went about cutting out the sections he did agree with and putting them in his own little crafty Bible, right? Okay, and he pasted them all together and he used this for his own personal devotion and family formation. Now, we, we come to find out about this journal not because Thomas Jefferson published it or made it known or widely spread it about. Actually, it was after he died that one of his children sold it to a journalist, which is excellent. Um, Thomas Jefferson had deep convictions around the privatization of faith and religion, and that that should be someone's own personal conviction, rather than something that's even made public. And yet, when it was circulated around, it was underneath the title, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So his greatest hits, basically, right? Of Jesus Christ. And he actually writes an introduction for himself and his family. And just to kind of get into his mind a little bit as to why he did this, um, I'm going to read it for you, okay? He writes, "...in extracting the pure principles which he taught," speaking of Jesus, "...we should have to strip off the artificial vestments in which they have been muffled by priests who have travestied them into various forms as instruments of riches and power to themselves." there will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which have, has ever been offered to man. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines, he said so humbly. Right. Um, it, it, it's it's hard to imagine someone, and even in this, in, in his time and day, you know, the late 17th, early 18th century, someone cutting into a printed version of the Bible, which were much more rare than they are today, and then creating his own makeshift version with his favorite parts about Jesus, and then holding it up with the authority of history and saying, "Behold, the man Jesus." And I know for most of us in here, we're like, you know what? I would never do that. I would never take a pair of scissors and start cutting at the Bible. Imagine the gall of someone who just thinks that they can do that and shape their own trajectory. And lately, I'm not so sure if we actually believe that. For example, I don't know if you're anything like me. If you read the Bible semi-regularly or regularly, um, something that I do is I'll take a pen or a highlighter Right, And if a particular passage jumps out at me or resonates with my heart, it comforts me, it encourages me, I underline it, circle it, put a star next to it. I'm not like erasing words and like, I don't agree with it. No, but I like highlight it for reference later, right? It becomes a space where I can say, oh, I want to remember this passage. Well, if you're anything like me, when's the last time you underlined or highlighted a passage that really just chafed against your soul or sensibilities? You're like, ooh, that one hurts. Ah, Like... No, like, very rarely, if I think about my own history, have I ever, like, documented where that is for easy reference. I would much rather ignore it, move on to a passage that makes me feel a little bit warmer inside, and continue to live about my life, right? Here's my point. We may not physically pick up a pair of scissors, but everyone, and I mean everyone, and this includes me, has our scissors, and a clear litmus test of that, or a clear sign of that, rather, is when you look at the polarization of our culture today. And people say Jesus is with them 100% on both sides. Anne Lamont, a brilliant author, in her book, Bird by Bird, writes this. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> it's a warning flag as to where we've gone and we've cut Jesus down to size. And so this morning, I don't think the question for any one of us is, have I cut out certain parts of Jesus that I don't find agreeable? The question is, where has every single one of us cut Jesus down to our size? And that's why we're walking, continuing to walk through the gospel account of Luke with the hope, with the desire that we will put aside, and even if we can't do that, recognizing our postmodern or post postmodern culture, naming and questioning our agendas that we bring to the text, our assumptions, our preferences, and returning to the most consequential, controversial human beings that has ever lived on this earth the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you're here this morning and you're You're wrestling with the faith and you're kind of on the edge of rejecting parts of Jesus or maybe Jesus, some total or maybe even Christianity writ large. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what, 2020, new year, new me. Um, And you're thinking, I'm going to be more fully devoted to Jesus. Nothing's off limits for him. Or you're somewhere in between these two extremes. Every single one of us wants to respond to the real Jesus. Jesus. Nobody wants to respond to a fictional Jesus, a made-up Jesus. We want to know who he really is. And every reputable scholar will say that something happened in the first century around a person named Jesus. The question is, what happened? And the question for you and I that we need to be asking ourselves is, how do I know that in the midst of so many of these deep desires, how can I know that I'm actually chasing after the real Jesus and not just going about some post-talk justification to make a Jesus I feel really good about. Well, every good historical research agenda takes three important factors to use, and they are this. Every good historian listens to the most reliable witnesses as to what actually happened, assesses the evidence within its contextual bounds, and then thirdly is willing to follow the evidence wherever it goes, as crazy as it may seem. That is the good avenue of history. And what's so astounding is that that is the modus operandi of Luke here, that he sets out for us in this prologue, these first four verses, to bolster our trust rather than to breed skepticism as to who Jesus really was and is. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, Luke, he begins this magisterial account with a magisterial sentence, okay? These first four verses that were just read for us are actually one sentence in Greek, the original Greek in which they were written. They are meant to be like the colonnades of the Pantheon. When you approach the Pantheon and you saw the grandeur of the colonnades, they were meant to be a marker, a pointer, that if you think this is impressive, wait till you get inside. Luke is laying this out and every first century reader knowing the complexity the detail, the robust nature of this first century uh, sentence would have come with the expectation that this is a serious well thought out, researched account such that if you come with genuine questions as to who Jesus is and what he did you can have a sure foundation for trust. So what are those first verses. Let's read those first two together again. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who have from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. First thing, if you're anything like me that you note is right off the bat Luke says that there have been many undertakings try to compile a narrative of this person, Jesus, to to describe what actually happened around Jesus. So why should we, and why has the church for over 2,000 years given so much credence to Luke's historical work here? Because Luke, as a brilliant historian, goes to the most reliable witnesses. What does he say? He says he goes to those who from the beginning... We're eyewitnesses. We're eyewitnesses. So if you truly want to pursue who the real Jesus is and therefore make an informed decision on how you'll respond to who the real Jesus is, the first step is to listen to those who knew Jesus. Listen to those who knew Jesus. Now, an eyewitness is what? It's someone who has personally seen what happened and can give you a firsthand account, right? Like I was there, I saw it with my own two eyes you know, Jesus literally healed my two eyes, you know, whatever it might be, this eyewitness account. And Luke is apparently saying, hey, I went from town to town chasing out these eyewitnesses to bring a reliable account from the very mouths of those who saw this happen. Now, this is not not what we're often told in pop media or from some scholars. For example, there is the professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Bart Ehrman, who in his research has presented a theory that basically the New Testament is the long end of a game of telephone. You remember the game of telephone? It's like someone starts off by saying, I pinched my cousin, and then it ends up with I own an elephant. You're like, how did those, like, where did it break down? So that's basically his framework. He writes out, and I encourage you to go read some of his works, but he says the Gospels, New Testament documents are the products of oral traditions. The first followers of Jesus told the stories that got passed on and on and on for a long time, like a game of telephone. The message and stories kept getting passed on and on and on, and then eventually some people wrote these oral traditions down a long time after Jesus died. So we can't be sure what is true to the life of Jesus and what isn't. Luke's gospel is mostly Luke's opinion and very old tradition. Now, it's a fascinating theory, okay, as he's wrestling through his research. But it is nothing more than a theory. And where I've been much more compelled is by a gentleman by the name of Richard Bauckham, who is the uh, senior scholar at Ridley Hall, Cambridge, okay, no small cheese at all. Um, And in his response, he debunks this theory and his 600-page response entitled, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. Now, to save you a little bit of time, it's a really long tome as he dives through history. I mean, it's really brilliant work. Um, but to save you a little bit of time, I'm just going to give you at least, I think, the two most compelling. There are others, but I'll give you at least the two most compelling reasons as to why this is not, the New Testament is not the result of a long telephone game, okay? Okay. The first is this, the Gospels are written too early to be made up, okay? Um, Most scholars agree for a lot of historical reasons. One of the primary ones is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple not showing up a lot in these Gospel accounts um, is that it was written some 25 to 40 years after the death of Jesus. Why on earth is that important to even begin to think about? Here's why. There are eyewitness testimony, folks, who are still alive while these gospel accounts are being recorded and circulated, which means if there are fabrications and myths or exaggerations about the person of Jesus, there are eyewitnesses who can say, that's ridiculous, it didn't go down that way. Nobody, first century, 21st century, wants to bank their life on a myth. Who wants to do that? Who's got the time for it? No one, all right? We want to know what's real. They did too. For example, if I were to tell, you know, this really sharp crew, hey, back in 1990, you guys remember how the Chiefs won the Super Bowl? You'd be like, wait, did they? Some of you may not know, but for those of you who know football, we would be like, that's ridiculous. They didn't win in 1990, and they would say, don't believe a word this man says, and everybody would do their research, and they'd bring up Google, right? Like, that's But they would trust the eyewitnesses. I was around in 1990. You know, Bob's a major follower of the Chiefs and he wouldn't lie about this. If they won, he would say it. Like, you know. And so, in the same way, you have eyewitnesses who are around while these accounts are being spread, and they were written too early to be just myths or fabrications or the result of a long telephone game. That's the first thing. They're written too early. Secondly, The early church revered the eyewitnesses, revered them. Once again, nobody wants to bank their life on a myth. Not really excited about that. Um, I don't want to give my life for a myth or even an exaggeration of someone. And what we find is that, and Bauckham makes a case for this once again in his book, that this term, from the beginning, where eyewitnesses is actually a technical term talking about a particular kind of person. Someone who, yes, saw that, but the church took such weight in that that they are then described as what? In chapter 1, verse 2, ministers of the word. They would rehearse these stories. In the first century, they didn't have the neural pathways that we have that we forget things and we think we can just Google it. They were in an oral culture. They remember details much better in describing stories. And then in the same way when you're like at Christmas... And, you know, you got your Uncle John who's telling the story of what happened to Aunt Betty. You know, and everybody knows where the story's going, but he takes a couple liberties, you know. And everybody's like, that's not how the story went. Like, don't exaggerate, Uncle John. That's the same way. These stories were from eyewitness accounts, but from whole communities that stewarded the accuracy of the story because they all were zealous to know the real Jesus. A good example within the biblical witness of this is in Acts chapter 1. Judas is no longer an apostle, for obvious reasons, and um, in his betrayal of Jesus. And so you have the other 11 apostles, and they're like, hey, we've got to find a replacement for Judas. And when you look at chapter 1, what do they make as a key priority? That he was a witness, what, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He saw Jesus, he walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, and so that he could therefore come with the apostolic authority and simultaneously the eyewitness credibility to tell the world who the real Jesus is, which is why Matthias was ultimately chosen as the replacement of Judas. Because of this emphasis of from the beginning was an eyewitness of who Jesus actually is and what he actually did. Another good example of this being fleshed out in the early church is if you look at one of the earliest Christian writings, is by a gentleman named Papias. Uh, Bacham lays this out in his uh, tome as well. Um, he went about trying to bring together an account of who Jesus is in the first century. And he travels long and far to see two eyewitnesses, Aristian and John the Elder. And he went because he wanted to hear from them how they had experienced Jesus so he could give an accurate portrayal of who Jesus actually was and is. And the church revered these eyewitness accounts. People would travel long and far to do fact-checking. And every time Luke is mentioning a name within his narrative, he's basically shouting, go talk to him for yourself. Find it out for yourself. I'm not trying to exaggerate here. I'm not trying to lie. I'm trying to give you an orderly account of who Jesus actually is. And so this is very contrary to the very theory of the telephone game, that we can come and find Luke's opinion, but at the end of the day, we need to make a judgment call on who we think Jesus is. You see, Luke's account is not some mishmash brought together in an organized, poetic fashion. No, he's a thoughtful historian seeking to bring bedrock storytelling to the reality of who Jesus is because the gospel, this good news about Jesus and what he has done for the world, is spreading across the world and the eyewitnesses are beginning to die off, either due to age, persecution, or geopolitical unrest, which is causing these communities to be dispersed. Right? This is really important. Before the destruction of Jerusalem around 70-ish A.D., right? There's a specific date, but I don't remember it right now. That's why I say 70-ish, okay? Um, it's historically documented. But when that happened, it caused a lot of Jews to disperse. And some of those, simil- those communities that were stewarding this story and the eyewitness accounts began to be spread about. And so Luke is trying to bring an orderly account that's reliable, that's historical, so that no matter who you are, no matter what time you find yourself, no matter where you find yourself geologically or geographically, rather, you can know with confidence the real Jesus. Listen to those who knew Jesus. That's what Luke's trying to do. That's what he's seeking to present to you and to me. And so he brings together an orderly account, a narrative. That's a really important word here in verse 1. So when we're trying to make a contextual assessment of the evidence before us, what we need to understand is that according to Luke, we need to look for the story first. We don't come to the New Testament looking for disembodied morals, ethics, or teachings. We'll get to those, and Jesus has a lot to say about our lives for our good and the good and the flourishing of the communities in which we live. But where we need to start first, and the primary goal of of, of Luke, this gospel historian, is to present us who Jesus is and what he did for us. For example, if you look at most religions and their religious texts, when you come across a miraculous event or situation, it's usually tied to a moral teaching. Right? Something miraculous happened, therefore you should do this. When you look across the gospel accounts, what's fascinating, and I don't have enough confidence to say never, but almost never it's about a moral lesson. The large majority is that it's supposed to give you a window into who Jesus is and what he can do and what he's come to do. So for example, and during Christmas and the Advent season, we walk through Luke chapter 1 and 2. You find these miraculous birth narratives. You see, you know, angels showing up in the sky. Shepherds are being invited to a state. Like, what? Where's the moral in that? Is that like, hey, when a myriad of angels shows up, you better listen. Like, no. Like, or hey, grab your shepherd's crook. We're all going to be shepherds. Like, no, that's not. Those are not moral. They're, they're meant to point us to who this Jesus is and what he's come to do. Be aware. It's centered in on the story first. And that's because the entrance into Christianity is different than every other religion across the world. Every other religion, every other religion says there's the mountain, here's the road map on how you get up to God. In Christianity, what's so astounding is that by his grace, he comes down the mountain to find us. You know, as a pastor... I often find myself in conversations with people randomly. And usually when I meet them, you know, for the first time, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm a good person. Great. Um, (laughs) Meet a lot of good people. Um, They tell me. They're really good. I was even, even fascinating. There's this weird Hulu show that's about, it's called Abandoned. And they, like, go to all these abandoned structures across the United States. And it was all these abandoned malls in northeastern Ohio. And he, like, goes into one abandoned mall that has all these churches in it. And he's like, look, I'm not a Christian. But he's, I kid you not, he sits down with the pastors of this church. Of this church and he sits down and she goes, we're really glad you're here at church. And he goes, well, great. I've always considered myself a good person. And I was like, ah, there it is. You know, anyway. So um, that's just what we do. And then one of the first questions that this you know and, and where it ultimately divulges down into when we start having these conversations around Jesus is this question so if I start following Jesus, do I have to do this or or more than likely if I start following Jesus do I have to stop doing this? That's maybe the more the real one um, and I don't mean to you know to, to slight anyone's spiritual journey, but that's, that's ultimately the wrong question. And that actually reveals that we've we've started in the wrong place. We've started with the do's and the don'ts. And you've begun to approach Jesus as if he's any ordinary human being where you're doing a cost-benefit analysis as to whether or not you should you know, follow him or not. You see, when... Instead, we should should be coming to the Gospels and Luke's Gospel account, which he's seeking to do so intently and thoughtfully, and we're to see Jesus for who he is. His astoundingly beautiful life. I mean, listen, even a really good person will only die for his friends. Jesus dies for his enemies. This beautiful life, this astounding teaching that has caused philosophers to wrestle through his brilliance for millennia. And a powerful, resilient life that has changed the very course of the world. And when you begin to see him for who he is and what he's come to do, you start with a different question. You know, my, my family, I've got three kids. We started reading C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. My daughter's six, my son's four, and my other son is one, but he looks like he's 32. Um, <laughs> It's huge. <laughs> Picked him up from children's ministry in first service, and like, first service, service was like, he's heavy. I was like, I know. We tried everything. He just eats everything. Um, so we start reading through this, you know, and um, there's one of the particular books out of this Chronicles of Narnia called the, the Horse and His Boy. And there's this moment where these two characters, Bree and Hwin, they, they come and they approach Aslan, the great lion. And C.S. Lewis is very clear. He's like, it's not meant to be a one-to-one to Jesus, okay? But it is meant to like cause our imagination to think about a, a, a character like Jesus, okay? And so Brian, when they come before the lion, Aslan, and all of his awesomeness and his terribleness and his beauty. Remember, the lion's a carnivore, okay? It's a big deal. That's really terrifying. Um, And he's not like, hey, it's all cool. No, like he's with like this great grandeur, the lion, the great lion. And when this horse (laughs) approaches the lion and shaking, I love what Quinn says. Please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. That's what it looks like. To encounter Jesus, to see Him in all of His grandeur—the one who has the power of heaven, who enters into the framework of earth, and then goes to the depths of hell for you and me—we see Him stripped naked, dying for your sin and mine, and then three days later rises again. When you begin to understand who He is and what He did for me, you don't start saying, "Well, I don't know if I can do that." You start saying. Anything. What do you want? It's all yours. Who you are, you did that for me. There's nothing off limits. All of me for you. Because it was all of you for me. And we ask a wholly different kind of question. We have a completely different response. And before we ever get to teaching and obedience, which are important and we're going to get there, We have to first see who he is. We need a narrative. We need an account. We need the person and the work of Jesus. And this is the testimony across all 66 books of the Bible. There's not an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of grace. Like suddenly it hit 2020 and he decided a new resolution to be more gracious. Like that's not the God of the Bible. Consistently, it's always faith. Trust who I am first. First. And God is always proactively going before us, laying the framework for us to trust him. And then obedience later. Now, obedience is a space where we cultivate trust, where we say, you want me to go there? I trust you. And then when we do it, it bolsters trust as he carries us through, to be sure. It's pretty dynamic. But the dynamic, the very starting point, is first trust in him, faith in him. You know me, and even if you kind of don't know me, it might make sense. I love I love team building or you know exercises, um, which is great for the downtown campus staff. They love that. Um, and earlier in December, we did a team building exercise where we did an escape room, which was really fun. And just so you know, we set the record for December over in River Margo. We're just like, yeah, what's happening? We're pretty good, we work together well. Just file that away. Um <clears throat> But even for me, who loves team building exercises, the one that is just so cliche is the trust fall, right? How many of you know, like, you ever done this like, you know, we've all seen it, you know, you close your eyes and then you're supposed to fall back into one of your team members' arms or maybe your whole team, um, and there's this idea that physiologically, even if I don't trust, I have like this memory, even in my body, of you catching me when you could have just let me fall, even as a joke. And so that's a small building block for trust as an organization, yada, yada, and so the science goes. But as trite as it may sound, the trust fall is a brilliant, brilliant illustration as to what it means to have faith in Jesus, It's not blind faith. It's not jumping off into a dark abyss. You still need to assess someone's capacity and competency, to be sure. But what it is, is it's taking up every aspect of your life, all of it, in your arms and falling back into his. And saying, Jesus, will you catch me? Will you hold me? Will you help me make sense of this? And i got to be honest, at 34, I just had a birthday in December, I watched three movies and stayed in my jams all day. It was great. Um, (laughs) We can talk more about what the movies were later, but um, it's totally unimportant here. Um, But at 34, the older I get, the more (laughs) it feels like that trust fall into Jesus' arms takes longer and longer. I feel like I'm suspended in the air for much longer than I did when I was younger. There's, and the other thing is, like, the things that I'm falling into his arms with feel heavier. I've got three kids looking up to me, like, Dad, what do we make of life? I don't know. <laughs> like, <clears throat> the weights feel weightier, the anxieties feel more pressing. The places where I have security or had security don't feel as sure. Like all of these pieces, and I'm falling back into Jesus' arms thinking to myself, well, maybe the last time was a fluke, or maybe it was just an accident. Will he actually catch me this time? I had a conversation with one of our senior pastors back in November, and he said, Gabe, you've had like one of the busiest years of your life, and maybe of your life going forward. And I gotta be honest, the only reason I'm standing it before you today is because Jesus caught me again and again and again. When times I didn't even want to trust fall, I just collapsed. <laughs> and he held me. Now, we can talk on and on about why we should be listening to the most reliable witnesses around the historical account of Jesus and why Luke is pursuing these eyewitness accounts, so we should listen to the ones who knew Jesus. We can talk about how going about the evidence contextually from authorial intent and the purpose in which it was recorded and starting with the story first to bring a compelling reality about who Jesus is and what he did. But none of that's going to matter. And you're never going to get to know the real Jesus until you, number three, make it personal. Let the evidence guide you. Even as crazy as it may feel. What's so interesting to me about Luke's introduction here, these first four verses, are, are two things. When Luke is recording this, he's saying, I am putting my whole life into this Jesus. You notice what Luke doesn't say? He doesn't say, This happened. That it's in a human construction of history. That there's this iron ceiling and that there's no divine intervention. And this is just, no, what he says, interestingly enough, when you go to verse one, he says, he's giving you a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Say accomplished. accomplished. This is a loaded term, folks, a really loaded term. Where Luke is saying, this didn't just happen. God has intervened in the world. His purposes and his promises, which have been before the very dawn of creation, are now beginning to find a climax in this person, Jesus. It didn't just happen by chance. No, God has intervened. And so he's, he's investing his whole life to give us the gospel account of Luke. And then later, his second volume, the, go- or the, 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 the gospel according to the apostles, basically, the Acts. And he writes himself into the story, how he's walking with the Apostle Paul, experiencing suffering and persecution. He's giving everything of who he is into this because he deeply believes that God has intervened through Jesus. And then secondly, what's so unique about this gospel account is that the early, or actually rather, Luke is writing this gospel for Theophilus to have certainty. He's writing it for a particular person and to have Certainty. What a a fascinating word. Now, Theophilus comes with a lot of debate. People think he was one of three things. You know, this rich benefactor who's paying Luke's way to go visit all these towns and see the eyewitnesses. Or just a young Christian who's wrestling with his own doubts and questions. Or thirdly, merely a literary device. Theophilus means lover of God. And so every reader who is truly seeking after God should insert their name here, right? Um... Now I'm of the persuasion, which is a large majority of scholars, that Theophilus is a real person and a real, question, real Christian who's wrestling with his own doubts. Yes, in the first century. It's not like doubts were created in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century. I don't know if we can believe this anymore. No, people were questioning this from the beginning. And Luke is saying, "Listen, I'm going to the eyewitnesses." And I want to bolster your trust. I want to create a resource that tells the true story of Jesus. So the questions that you're asking, you can now have a deeper certainty in the historical ramifications that this did indeed happen. Now, I don't think actually... The hardest part around trusting Luke's account is actually within the gospel account itself. I actually think it meets a lot of historical standards for reliability and confidence. The the reason that this is so hard to trust is because trust is hard. And some of the greatest obstacles have to do with what's going on in our own hearts. You know, I had a conversation with a really good friend, and we were talking about relationships and, and dynamics and... Eventually, in that conversation, this person said, well, how can you trust anyone like that? And I was like, exactly. Um, trust in relationships are hard in and of themselves. And then you come to Jesus and these eyewitness accounts and you're to bank your whole life on them. Trust is extraordinarily difficult. And we've got family histories, we've got trauma, we've got all kinds of pain that block our ability often to trust. And we need the Holy Spirit to take us down these journeys of slowly opening up the doorways of trust. So trust is hard, and it's hard to fall into Jesus' arms. But I think there are at least two other contextual reasons for our 21st century age that make it really difficult to trust trust what we have before us in the gospel account of Luke. So here are two reasons why it's so hard to trust Jesus. The first is we have tons of options, right? Tons of options. We are in the information age. And you can find information about all different kinds of philosophies, religions, you know, ideologies at at your fingertips. And you can spend the majority of your life in analysis framed in the, the posture of agnosticism because you can never fully explore all the content. like all of these options and then you and then you know people who come from all these different experiences in a very pluralistic society who are very kind but have very different worldviews and perspectives on how to navigate life and even postures toward Jesus and it can feel like with all of these options you're looking at like a cheesecake factory menu it's like every restaurant's on here like where do I go it's not just cheesecake it's like thousand options of cheesecake and then everything else and amidst all these options, another option is just the option of distraction. Man, it's so hard to focus enough time to actually go deep in any particular topic. Because suddenly you're reading a blog about the weirdness of Scientology, and then it says weird dog toys on the side. So you click on that, and then suddenly you find yourself to a YouTube video with all these animals singing jingle bells. Or so I've heard. Um, it's astounding! It's astounding! How you can get lost in the internet and justify it as sermon research. Now, <laughs> distraction, options, they're all over the map. And, and frankly, amidst all these options and all these distractions, the question you have to ask yourself is, so why do we zero in on this one option? Why give your time and your attention to deep digging into Jesus? I think it's because of the mosaic of who he is. And it's these three important factors, okay? One, Jesus has an astoundingly beautiful life. How you interpret his death is up for a lot of debate from a lot of different people. But the fact that he died for other people is no It's irrefutable. I mean, people are just astounded at the life of Jesus, the way he cared for the vulnerable, where he sought to heal the sick and bring freedom for the oppressed. I mean, a beautiful life. And his teachings have just been astoundingly brilliant, such that people have been wrestling through them over 2,000 years, even if they don't like Jesus. But more than any of that is his resilient life. That after he went to the cross, three days later, he arose, And every reputable historian will say, listen, all the sources point to an empty tomb. Even Bart Ehrman will say, listen, the tomb was empty. What they did with the body or what happened to the body, that's where the debate begins. Now, if the powerful Roman Empire or the Jewish religious leaders at the time had any sort of access to the body with all of their power and resources, they would have shown it because they wanted to squelch the movement of Christianity from the very beginning. And that would have done it. But instead what happened is that the people who dispersed when they saw Jesus be crucified three days later said they saw something, someone. Hey, I had breakfast with them on a beach such that even not me, I'm talking about from the apostles' first-person perspective, just to be clear, if you're new and you're like, you had breakfast with Jesus? No. But no, the apostles are saying, hey, we had breakfast with him on this beach at the Sea of Galilee, and now I know we ran from him when he was being crucified, but now, no matter what you do to me, you can tear me apart, and we have historical evidence that they were, so many of them were martyred, were crucified upside down, like the apostle Peter, as tradition has it, unwilling to relent to the fact that they saw him alive and ascend into heaven. And so, of my opinion, the best account of the historical evidence that makes sense of why these people acted the way that they did, why the whole movement of the globe has been drastically informed by this one person named Jesus, isn't because he just died, but because three days later, he rose. And that puts Jesus in a category all his own. Unlike any other human being throughout history, this is why he's the one that we pursue and seek to understand and spend our time and attention knowing who he is, what he did, and why he's worth following. So the first obstacle is that we just have tons of options. The second obstacle is that we just want an agreeable Jesus. We come, me too, I'm going to be very clear, I'm not saying you, I'm saying us we come with our agendas to the text and we think there are agendas but really they're just culturally informed and we're so culturally shaped that we think there are original ideas but in reality it's the values of our particular day and age that we've owned up to say that there's no way that those could be wrong so if they're wrong and disagree with Jesus then Jesus must be wrong no the question every single person in this room is going to have to ask when you assess the evidence is will I cut up this story like TJ, Thomas Jefferson? I took a little liberty there. Sorry. Um, sorry, that was really dumb. Will I cut up this story like TJ until it fits me, or will I fall into Jesus' story as is? Will I cut up this story like TJ until it fits me, or will I fall into Jesus' story as is. And this is so important. This is so crucial. Here's why. Because it's not just about you, but it's the people around you. Let's return to the story of Thomas Jefferson. If Thomas Jefferson would have been willing to be confronted and challenged by the real Jesus, would he have started the first smear campaign in U.S. history around presidential elections? He actually hired someone to spread lies about Adams, the third, you know, trying to be the third president of the United States. Would he have, if he had allowed a Jesus to challenge him, would he have, as he's writing out the Declaration of Independence of the inalienable rights of all human beings, would he have not only still kept the over 100 African American slaves but more than doubled them over the subsequent years? Would he have... Sexually abused one of his slave girls, hid it from his wife, and then ultimately even denied some of his own children. Now, I know the arguments, it's like, hey, that's a bit of chronological snobbery. He was a man in his age. He didn't understand all the ideas. I want you to, I want you to go do some research on this. One of his contemporaries was William Wilberforce. Same time period. Thomas Jefferson is our first example. William Wilberforce, instead of taking scissors to his Bible, submitted to the text the historical witness of Jesus. He was in legislation, and he was a legislator there in England. And what were his two goals in life once he came to know Jesus? The abolition of slavery and the return to manners. <laughs> Smear campaign, abuse, slavery, abolition of slavery, return to manners drastically different outcomes for the people who are around them and being a catalyst for the care for the vulnerable and fighting against injustice. But unlike Jefferson, Wilberforce said, this is Jesus, I don't have the right to tell him who he is. He has the right to tell me who I am. And even though Jefferson felt fully justified in his era because of the values of that day, and nobody would have really confronted him or felt like he was doing anything that unordinary, Wilberforce pushed against the values of the day and said, look to the kingdom of heaven, look at the true Jesus, and he is unsatisfied with the way things are being promoted. Very different. It's not just about you. Your life will leave a legacy of injustice the more you Deny Jesus' right to challenge you. And then you think about Jefferson's little crafty Bible. Where does it end? With Jesus in the tomb. There's no resurrection. No hope. No life. Listen, I'm going to be very clear. I don't need another inspirational figure. A life coach or a yes man in my life. I'm not really excited about I may do it inadvertently and I'm constantly trying to go back and have thoughtful people around me and dive into the text. I'm not interested in in intentionally making a Jesus of my own making. I just don't need another fiction in my life. I need the real Jesus. I look at my kids and I want them to know the real Jesus, even if it comes with great cost to me. Because he's the only one who comes with life. He's the only one who can give them life. He's the only one who can give us life, a life that actually defeats the grave and heads into eternity. I need Luke's account of Jesus. And so I want to ask each and every one of us, will you join us as we seek to encounter the real Jesus this year? I mean, I hope we're trying to do that every year, but we're doing it especially in Luke. We join us. Will you question your own version of Jesus? Will you question your doubts and question your questions and be willing to listen to those who knew him? Approach the story first and be willing to make it personal if that's where the evidence is pointing. So if you're here this morning and this isn't your story, right? I want to invite you to explore Jesus with us. If you're here and this is your story, I want to challenge you to always be asking yourself, is this challenging my own internal version of Jesus? And does it need to be corrected with the historical account of those who actually knew him? And maybe, and I honestly think this this third category might be the majority. For some of you, this might be a familiar story. There's a part of your family culture growing up. Like you remember the flannel graph, Jesus, you throw up some bread and it just sticks to this flannel thing. Like, (laughs) and now you're entering this new season of life where there's been transitions, and frankly, you're just disenchanted with Jesus. That's You've heard it all before. I want to invite you to rediscover Jesus. Because frankly, if you feel like you're disenfranch- disenchanted with Jesus, chances are really good your life feels a bit disenchanted. And so if you want to know new life, let's rediscover him together. And you know who you're going to find? Someone who's so committed to you that he has all the power of heaven that he won't just step into earth, he'll drudge through hell. He'll bleed, he'll die, he'll rise again for you, for me. And spoiler alert, he's still alive. And so he's seeking you. And this right here is an invitation for us to know who he actually is. Not to constantly live in speculation. Constantly feel like, you know is he still that way no he's the same god yesterday today and forever and he's chasing you the question is are you willing to see him for who he is let's pray god help us to put down our scissors help us to together as a community of faith center ourselves around the historical witness of jesus that we might serve you, follow you, know you as you really are. And in any ways in which we have been in error, constantly reform us, refine us by the power of your spirit who uniquely works when we gather in the name of Jesus. So God, that's our prayer. That's our hope. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the strength to trust you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.